I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. Today in my virtual studio, I'm joined by our first ever guest with royal lineage. Through her mother, she's descended from former czars of Russia and the Russian writer Alexander Pushkin, as well as an African tribal chief turned Russian nobleman, and her godmother was none other than Princess Diana. But she's not here for her royal connections. Lady Edwina Grosvenor is a British philanthropist and criminal justice campaigner. She founded The Clink, a charity focused on prisoner rehabilitation initiatives, and is the founder of One Small Thing, an organisation campaigning to better understand trauma and its impact in the criminal justice system. Edwina, you were born at the start of the 1980s, The second wave of feminism had swept the UK and many other parts of the world. Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister. Many people would have said at this time that sexism was increasingly an historical oddity. But how did you see it as a girl growing up? Thank you for the introduction. I think it all makes me sound much more interesting than I actually am, but I appreciate it. I was born in 81, so I think sort of certainly throughout the 80s, I was pretty oblivious to most things. And then sort of throughout the 90s, when I was sort of 10 plus, it was probably during that decade that things started becoming more clear to me about the sort of difference between boys and girls on on every level. But my female role model was my mum, and she had a motorbike, she drove her car with her top down, she had a paraglider, and she loved to go paragliding, she was a traveller, she was an adventurer. So me and my older sister were kind of like, you know, we were quite tomboyish, and we had this sort of boyish looking bikes and we liked to wear trainers and we didn't really like to wear dresses and things like that but I think it was probably I was giving this a long hard sort of thought you know over the past couple of days and I think really I noticed things were different more when I got into the world of work as a woman you know back at home yes my father was in the military he was away a lot he was running the family company Grosvenor Estates and yeah my mum was the one at home with the kids but that was kind of the same as you know all my friends when I went round to play at friends houses it was the mums in the kitchen and the mums with the kids and holding the babies and the dads were out working. Is there one moment that you would point to when you would say that was kind of the aha moment women and men girls and boys treated differently? Again, I think it was when I was older because at school I also played football and I played rugby when I could and any area that I probably wasn't meant to be in, I made a point of getting in there, which sort of says a lot about my sort of career choice and and things later on in life. But I think it wasn't one big aha moment. It was like lots of little things. So you'll be sitting in a meeting and someone or a man will crack a joke about the women getting the tea. Um, You'll be maybe doing your driving test and and, and the sort of male instructor might make a joke about how women drive so I think for me it was lots of little things that suddenly I was like oh this is really odd 
And then that was sort of all put together when I got into the world of work. And I'm like, where are the female CEOs? Why am I the only female on the board? Why do female lawyers struggle so much? You know, the sort of equal pay in the BBC for women. So it was lots of little things that then made a whole load more sense when I started working. And then, of course, you get into the justice system. And again, that's a whole nother topic, which I'm sure we'll cover. (laughs) Yes, we definitely will. But let's go back to your mother. She sounds amazing. And she was the patron of various charities. She talked to you over the dinner table about social issues like homelessness And at the age of 12, your father took you, so you were a young girl, to a rehabilitation centre in Liverpool where you were introduced to heroin addicts. What was motivating your parents and what impact did all of that have on you? Also, you know, it's no secret I'm from a privileged family. More privilege was to come my way and sort of wealth. And I think my parents obviously sat down together often and sort of thought, oh my God, how do we educate our children about drugs because anyone listening with children will know that if you try and educate your child on anything and you know in the days of homeschooling now your child just glazes over and or looks at you like you're a sort of reptile when you try and tell them anything at all so rather cleverly I think they thought well let's just devolve responsibility here and it would be much more sensible for them to hear from people who are in the grips of it, you know, people who are really trying to recover. And I think taking children away from their home and educating them somewhere else, as in in this drug rehabilitation clinic in Liverpool on Hope Street, it was so much more profound. You know, sitting in your lovely big house that looks like a palace, having a lecture about why not to take drugs it's not going to have the same impact, is it? So we were taken along, myself and my older sister, and there was a man and a woman. They were in a relationship and they were both using heroin and injecting. And the brief was really, you can ask them whatever you want, whatever you want at all. So they'd say, well, we're trying to hold jobs down. So, you know, we'll inject in places that aren't so obvious. So maybe in our groin or between our toes. And they talked about the abscesses that might happen as a result of that. And I remember just being so interested and really rather amazed that these people wanted to talk to us because it's traumatic, it's deep, it's their lives. Their lives have obviously taken a bad turn for them to be where they are. But I was like, can you take your shoes and socks off so I can... So I can see. I know exactly. Well, that was rather the reaction my father had. I almost felt his eyeballs hit the side of the wall. But it was so amazing because they were like, sure. And it was just a really lovely experience. But I, of course, left under no doubt that drugs are not glamorous. I left under no doubt that this was a poison that should be avoided at all costs. So I was probably fairly intolerable for there on in because, you know, when I was growing up, when I was around other people taking drugs, I was a bit like, oh, poor you, you don't know. You haven't been shown where this could lead you. And I was a bit of a prior about it probably. But, you know, it works. A lot of people say, oh, would you advise me to do that with my children? And of course, there's no one answer to that. It depends on your child. It depends how it's done. But certainly I wouldn't rule it out. And certainly um, I'll be doing something similar with my children. Many young children who are exposed to disadvantage or had an experience like that might be intrigued. You were obviously intrigued. They might be saddened, but they would probably move on. But for you, all of this seemed to ignite a profound interest in the criminal justice system, 
prisoners, you know, what happens to people when they get on the other side of the law. What do you think it was that kind of sparked a lifetime passion rather than just being one episode in your childhood? Again, I think it comes down to the type of character you are. And I'm one of those characters that if I see something, I find it very difficult to walk away from. So sometimes I'm quite standoffish about certain social issues because I know that once I go there, there'll be a whole sort of tsunami of then me fighting about sort of like what I should do to change it and sort of, you know, getting my hammer out. I was very young and I saw things that I felt were fundamentally unjust. It made me think a lot about my background and the, you know, the privilege that I had and the lovely house and the supportive parents and not wanting for anything and thinking how unfair. It's just luck that I've been born into this family And for these children, they've been born into this family and their chances are so few and mine are so many. Like, how is that fair? So again, coming back to this theme of justice the whole way along, I don't know, unfairness and unjust things just don't sit well with me at all. And that's like on so many levels. I've always had this feeling of, I don't know, maybe guilt about walking away and having the privilege to see, the privilege to help fix and then not to do anything about it would sort of keep me up at night. There would be many people in comparable positions of privilege, though, who don't have that urge to do good in the world or or make an impact. I mean, do you think that comes from the value system in your family home where clearly your parents were conscious that they wanted to raise you to see the other side of life? I think so, yeah. So my parents were very much always of the mindset that you bring people with you. And, you know, if you're going to have great things in life, you need to be able to share. And so for me, I also knew that I wasn't going to have to work for a living. So I had the option. And later on in life, I thought, well, if I want to do something with my life professionally, which I always did want to do, I suddenly realized that actually I could make a profession out of this. I could make a profession out of giving away. I could make a profession out of banging the drum for those less well-off than me and for those who struggled more than me. And, and so suddenly that was a real aha moment for me, which was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I've been given all this stuff and now I can make it my thing. Whereas a lot of people get a job and it's their thing on the side, not to do it down at all. That's still great. Um, but I was in the lucky position where I could make it my career. And you commenced on that early. You've worked in and around prison services since the age of 18. You'd travelled to Kathmandu to work on initiatives to get innocent children taken out of prison during your gap year. And you then went on to study criminology and sociology at a university in the UK. And you came to Australia too, which is fantastic, to study criminal behaviour at Edith Cowan University in Perth. What did those early experiences, both the study and the exposure to what it's like, teach you about prisons and the criminal justice system? Well, the first prison I ever walked into was Central Jail in Kathmandu. And I was 18, as you say, and I was sort of fresh off the aeroplane. I travelled to Nepal by myself. And suddenly I'm like in this sort of female side of Central Jail. And I remember being, again, that feeling like I had on Hope Street with meeting the man and the woman who were struggling with heroin. I sort of felt, again, very, I don't want to overuse the word privilege, but sort of really privileged to be able to be there. I felt like I was seeing something that most people didn't see, a thing that a lot of people have opinions and views on, but actually haven't been inside prisons. 
So I remember just being like, wow, this is like this almighty secret that people don't usually get to see the inside of. And I'm here. I didn't feel scared. I definitely left that prison that day having changed, I think, mentally and emotionally, which sounds a bit sort of like, oh, I went on my gap year and found myself. But I left with a sort of child under my arm that was about two years old. You know, it was very chaotic. It was Kathmandu, you know, the Nepalese capital in the Himalayas. So, of course, you wouldn't walk out of a prison in England with a child under your arm unless, you know, you've gone through all the checks and balances and all the rest of it. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I left that prison that day physically but I never left emotionally and now I'm about to turn 39 and I feel the same way you know my sort of heart remains in it entirely even if you know through Covid we haven't been able to go back into the prisons which has been sad but that had a profound profound effect on me and it was the women's side of the prison I went into first which was quite domesticated the women were brushing each other's hair and they had children with them they were flying kites because it was the festival the kite festival at the time I went round to the men's side of the prison totally different ball game my demeanor changed I wasn't allowed in I felt rather vulnerable. There was a big Western white man standing there. Apparently he'd been done for sexual offences against children. There were children in that prison with him. So that was another real profound moment where I saw at very close quarters the sort of the male-female side of life in prisons. But not only that, it's kind of like how that made me feel as an individual, where I felt safer, where I felt my tribe was. And of course, that was, you know, with the women. And what happened to the child who came out of the prison with you that day? There's a few prison assistance missionaries dotted around Kathmandu. So it was really to take the child to the prison assistance missionary where it could be looked after and then taken back to the prison to visit its parents as opposed to, you know, living in the prison. And then I went on to, as you say, to university to study criminology and sociology and criminal behaviour in Australia. So it was nice to have had that bit of experience to then be able to go into my studies to you know, make a little bit of sense out of the books. <laughs> now, I'm just going to have to ask you, just because I do, what's your favourite memory of being a student in Australia? Well, I like the sea and I like the sun. So Western Australia obviously ticked those boxes. And, you know, lots of fit surfers. That was, you know, <laughs> that was also, I have to say, a little bit of a draw because my decision making process was based around fit surfers. I'm sorry, but it's true. <laughs> We're just happy you picked Australia. That's good. <laughs> Yeah. Now, during all these university studies, you based your dissertation on the experience of women giving birth in prison, and you didn't realise the full horror of what that must be like until you had your first child when you said, I almost don't want to go there thinking about what it must be like to go through that no matter what you've done. Can you tell us what happens to mothers and babies born in prison And what should we be doing to address that? Yeah, I mean, it's such an emotive topic, really. You're right. My dissertation was about children being reared in prisons. And obviously, that had a lot to do with my experience in Nepal and in Kathmandu and seeing children there, which is one of the reasons why I decided to write it. And it was about the attachment theory as well and the damage. I studied psychology as an A-level and um, learned a lot about the attachment theory. So when is the right time? I think we all can agree that there's never a right time to remove a child from its mother. But of course, some circumstances dictate that that is the safest thing to do. 
when it comes to prison, the problem that we have got is that the prison population stands at around 87,000 women are make up around 4,000 of that number. Generally speaking, they're less than sort of 5% of the prison population. And 81%-ish are in for nonviolent crimes. So you have to go upstream of the problem a bit first, which is we house and look after so many women in our prisons in England. You know, there's so many of them who just shouldn't be there for the crimes that they've committed. We still imprison women for not paying their TV licenses. Yes, there's a lot of acquisitive crime that goes on and women will be robbing and stealing for reasons. Yes, it's wrong. But does it warrant a prison sentence and the money that it costs to keep them there? You know, I don't think it does. And there's cross-departmental consensus with our governments and previous governments that, you know, we're getting it really, really wrong. There's many women in prison for such short sentences that some of them will only serve days. So that's enough time for them to lose their job, their house and their children if they have those three things. So then if we sort of scoot forward and you have a pregnant woman in prison, well, First of all, we shouldn't have to sit here and say they need to be looked after. They need access to medical assistance. They need antenatal care and all the stuff that we would get in the community. I know a lot of people would say, well, they're in prison. But this is when you always have to come back to the fact that prison is a punishment, which is the loss of liberty. It's not then to heap on a whole load of other problems that fundamentally are going to have to be picked up in the community anyway. And there's been two babies that I know of that have died in the last year in English prisons. And one lady was left unsupervised and unchecked in her cell, and she gave birth alone. The bell either didn't ring or no one heard it. Who knows what happened? Because, you know, obviously things go very quiet and the details are sketchy. But all I know is that something horrific happened. And not only is that hugely traumatic for the mother, I mean, can you imagine having had you know, lots of my own children, I just sort of can't imagine what that's like. But then a staff member comes into work in the morning and opens the door. You know, this isn't England 2019-20, is it? You know, this still happens. And then there was another case of a lady who was saying that she was in a huge amount of pain. And it was kind of like, oh, 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 I get it. You know, the prisons are overcrowded. Everyone needs a doctor. It's chaos. But she then miscarried on the way to hospital in handcuffs. Again, you sort of think, is this England 2020? Is this the best we can do? You know, I work across all the women's prisons in this country, and I work with some of the best prison officers. There's some fantastic governors. There's people who are doing their level best against the odds. But the problem is, when you work in a dysfunctional system, it doesn't matter how good and kind and brilliant you are at your job, the system will always get you. So I think it's such a multifaceted conversation to have. Because the other thing is, you know, there's six mother and baby units across our women's prisons in England. And actually, they're very nice places. The officers don't wear uniforms. The mothers can be with their babies in their cots. They do get good care. They get care that they wouldn't get if they were maybe in their council flat, maybe on an estate somewhere. And there are staff that then take the babies out to get them used to noise in supermarkets and take them out for their injections. And, you know, so there's some good stuff that goes on. But David Cameron once was rather ill-advised when he talked about mother and baby units and sort of said how awful they were. So for people on the outside, yes, of course, you think baby in prison, mother and baby unit, awful. 
but actually they're rather amazing places. And a mother giving birth in prison or giving birth in hospital to serve a sentence would then be with their baby for up to 18 months. If she was serving a really, really long sentence, the baby is removed at six months. And of course, then when I started having my babies, I'd look at my six-month-old and think, my God, if you were taken out of my sight, even for 10 minutes, especially with your first baby, something physiologically happens to you. You know, so it really, when I started having my own children, I was like, oh, this is just so many different levels of trauma that only really comes into sharp focus when when it's happening to you. We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about gender gaps and normally they're gender gaps where women are coming off far worse than men, but clearly the gender gap in the prison statistics with women making up 5% of the population is kind of the other way around. What's your explanation as to why men are so hugely disproportionately in jail? So generally, you know, men are more violent. Women tend to be less violent. So, for example, if you're then on the wings, how does that translate? Well, if there's a, I don't know, something's going wrong, men will tend to punch each other, have a fight, move on. Women tend to turn their violence in on themselves and they will self-harm. The self-harm rates are creeping up in the men's prisons as well, but I think that's sort of for different reasons. But generally speaking, you see the externalization of violence with men, the internalization of violence with women. A lot of the women in prison are there, as I said, for crimes that they just should not be there for. And of course, there'll be many men in prison as well that maybe could be dealt with in a better way. But the problem is we don't really have many other ways we do have community sentences, but of course, we've got all sorts of problems now with, you know, Chris Grayling brought in the privatisation of probation, which has been a disaster. And now it's sort of being changed again, and it's constantly being changed. That isn't helpful if you don't have a robust community place to send people or robust community sentences. The other thing we see is that, generally speaking, women will be abused by someone to whom they say, I love you. So their mental health problems are graver. Again, it's not to say that that doesn't happen to men, but generally speaking, that's less common with men. So for women, there's usually a pimp or a drug lord or an abusive male partner. For men, there's not usually a female pimp, a female gang lord. And yes, Domestic violence happens, you know, women perpetrating against men, but we simply don't have the data because they simply don't report it. So it's not something we really know about. So generally speaking, those are the sort of trends. And, you know, we talk about the system as though it's one thing. But of course, I always separate it up. It's the men, the women and the children. And of course, then you can separate the female children to the male children. And every single category will have a different way of how you could make things better. So I'm sort of spending my life, my energy and my money in trying to improve the lot for women. And if we were to have something in the community on the outside, what would that look like? What would it cost? How would you do it? And what would it look like? My final question on prison population, what impact do you see from racism in society and who's in jail? You know, we have a problem with disproportionality in the criminal justice system as a whole. And we know that black people are more likely to get a custodial sentence. They're more likely to end up on remand. Of course, we know they're stopped more often. So therefore, they're more likely to get into trouble with the police. David Lammy, a couple of years ago, wrote the Lammy report. So if anyone's interested in sort of further details on that, that's a good one to go to. But of course, disproportionality goes across the judiciary 
and you know the police service and the probation service so again you have to look at it in the whole but of course the problems we have in society are only you know really the magnifying glass then goes on when we're in prison it's like a microcosm of society so so yes there are problems and I think you know a bit like education in society and education in schools you know the training could be a lot better all round in the criminal justice system I think. Based on all this experience that you've had with criminal justice and with prisons, you were motivated to found The Clink, which is a charity focused on prisoner rehabilitation initiatives. And you also founded One Small Thing that campaigns to better understand trauma and its impact in the criminal justice system. What are you trying to achieve with The Clink and One Small Thing? The Clink is now 10 years old. So I was one of the founding investors. So I can't take credit for the idea or anything like that. And there was a few of us at the beginning. And the idea was to set up a fine dining restaurant inside a working prison staffed by prisoners that the paying public would come in and eat at and spend money. So it was quite funny because I was like, okay, sure, I'll put some money in. But if you find, you know, I don't know, a group of other people to put some money in too, I'm not going to put all the money up for it. And the two founders at the time, were like, okay, great. So they beetled off. They found a few more people to put some money in. And the first clink got off the ground. And it was that funny thing of you build, they will come. I thought this is going to be an interesting story, but I'm not entirely sure that we're going to be able to get the paying public to come in and eat in prisons. But skip forward 10 years, and we've got four restaurants. We've got two gardens, three kitchens, a catering events organization within the clink and a cafe in Manchester, which is outside the walls. We have one in a female prison and the other three are male prisons. And the men and the women are sort of, they work a sort of 40 hour working week. They're in uniform. They are learning how to make the nicest coffees that you might get on the high street. So yes, with your soya milk and your oat milk and, you know, your lattes and this, that and the other. It's not just a bog standard coffee, but also with the food, you know, the fish comes in whole. So they need to learn how to fillet the fish. The pasta they have to make from scratch. The sauces they make from scratch. And they're being trained up to get their sort of city and guilds qualifications so that when they leave us after about 18 months, they can go into good jobs, not just bog standard jobs. You know, they're well trained and they do front of house, back of house, waiting on the tables. And when you walk into a, a clink restaurant, you know, there are glass tables, there's ambient music, there's ambient lighting, there's private dining rooms, there's, you know, so it really is a nice place to go and eat. But of course, you are being served by serving prisoners. And you have to come through all the checks and the security, like Brixton Prison, for example, you go down this narrow alleyway, you get checked in, you go through the security gates, you might get sniffed by the sniffer dog before you go in. So it's a real experience. And then, of course, what we weren't expecting, yes, the reoffending rates are low, our reoffending rates run at around 11%. And, you know, the average reoffending rate in this country is very high, it's well over 50%. We weren't expecting to have such an impact on the sort of conscience of the general public. You know, they'd come in and be like, oh, you know, I know he's a bank robber, but he's just, he's doing so well. And he served me my soup, and he looks a bit scared, you know, because they're wanting to do their best. So... Yes, we're driving the reoffending rates down through all our projects. But at the same time, if you want to challenge your own belief system about prisoners and prisons, then it's a great place to sort of go and have those debates when they're, these people are trying to better themselves. Well, that's fantastic. What an incredible story. And one small thing. 
so yeah, so I was the founding investor of the Clink, and then I was on the board for a while. And then after 10 years, you know, it's always good if you've been involved in helping to get something going to hoik off the board before you're sort of kicked off or get founder syndrome and become difficult. So I was really wanting to set up my own thing and drive my own thing. And I became really interested in trauma. And this now circles back to me being a child and probably circling back to me being on Hope Street in Liverpool with those two heroin users. It's all about why someone gets into the trouble they get into, understanding what's going on in their lives in order to make sense of their behavior. Because if you don't do that, how on earth are you going to help them to recover? How on earth do you devise services in order to help them if you don't know what's going on in their life? You know, it's just absurd, really, when you say it like that. But that's what we do, really, at the moment. And then you can't just look at trauma because, again, like everything, it's so multifaceted. So the trauma that women experience who are typically in prison, generally speaking, it's sexual violence. Generally speaking, it's sexual violence at the hands of a man. So what does that mean for the prison system? What does that mean on an operational level? Well, you've then got the prison officers who are working with these women. They don't know why the suicide rates are so high, why the self-harm rates are so high, why the assaults have gone up. And we go, okay, well, you're a male prison officer. Do you shout on the wings all the time? Oh, yeah, you know, they shout lunch and meds. And some prisons are really, really shouty. And I don't like it. And I haven't been brought up in a violent household. But if you think about all these women you have who've been shouted at all their lives and been in domestic violent households, men charging around in black uniforms, by the way, shouting, they might be a perfectly nice person, but that's really traumatizing. And then we say, imagine walking into a woman's cell. She's on her bed. Her legs are pointed towards you. She's been sexually abused in her bedroom for most of her life, maybe. Quite a typical thing to happen. And suddenly you've got a man in black charging through the door. Do you think that maybe if we think about the trauma they've suffered, and if you just have that in your kind of toolbox, you might be able to just open the door really quietly and say, is it okay for me to come in? You know, they might be half dressed. So you have a lot of these, particularly male officers going, oh my God, I feel so bad. I never realized. And it's like, it's okay. But if we equip ourselves with a bit more knowledge in life, you know, things can get easier and we can avoid the violent situations from happening. You know, I think institutionally, they've been moved away from asking people what's wrong with them, because it's like, don't open that Pandora's box, we don't have the time, there aren't enough staff on the wings. But actually, sometimes like just for you and I, because prisoners aren't some type of subhuman being, you know, they are us, we are them, we operate in the same ways, if we're pushed to those certain extremes. It's like, maybe just ask them if they're all right, you know, take two minutes, it often doesn't take very long to make someone feel calmer and to make them feel at ease. And surely in a place where it's understaffed and the violence is creeping up, surely that is crucial, crucial work to do. And it's not really being done. So I've always been interested in education and training. And so I set up one small thing in order to be able to bring the training across from America, because I saw it happening in the Californian women's prisons. And also in the male prisons, we do this work across the male prisons as well. But of course, as you can imagine, the content is entirely different. Those examples that I gave you aren't necessarily at the forefront of the training for the men. So yeah, it's fascinating. So we train the prison officers a couple of times a year. This is pre-COVID. And then they are able to go back into their prisons and train other prison officers. So it's like a cyclical training, which works really well because, you know, it's difficult for them to take time off work to come to external training. 
But at the same time, parallel to that, you sort of think, well, what about the prisoners themselves? They should have something. So we train up prisoners in order to co-facilitate interventions. So for women, it's something called healing trauma, which is a six-week intervention that's led by other prisoners. And for men, it's a bit longer, the intervention, but it's also peer-led, which is really, really an important part of the way we work. And actually, since we've all been stopped from going into prisons during COVID, it's amazing because some of the prisons that run healing trauma have been able to carry it ongoing because they've got enough prisoners who can facilitate the groups. So then you're sort of breaking down the barriers and then you've got the prison officers understanding what the women are going through. But at the same time, they're learning to manage their emotions and the sort of fire that's in a lot of them that sometimes spills over. Can you tell us too about the Forgiveness Project? As I understand it, it's a program that you're involved with that brings victims, survivors and perpetrators together to try and work through the consequences of the crime and hopefully to find a place of forgiveness. Does that really work? I mean, it sounds to me, frankly, intuitively, that you know, if you were the victim of a violent crime, that it would be beyond you to let that go in a spirit of forgiveness. So another huge topic, forgiveness, and I suppose the Forgiveness Project works at the extreme end. For example, Marion Partington, whose sister was taken by Fred and Rosemary West, who were infamous serial killers in our country. And she will talk about how she tried to forgive Rosemary West for what she did to her sister when her sister was found under the patio in the House of Horrors. She didn't necessarily just do that for Rosemary. She was having to work out how she could move forward in life and how she could break that cycle of wanting revenge, needing revenge. So I think in its simplest sense, it really is about trying to not let your life become consumed by that revenge and hatred. Yes, it's very easy for me to sit here and say that because I haven't been in any of those extreme situations, but I've met women who've been raped in basements by Chechenian rebels. This particular woman talked about how she forgave the men raping her because that was the way she survived. Double murderers having to try and forgive themselves. When other people have forgiven him, this particular person I'm talking about, he very much struggles on how he forgives himself for what he did now that he has a fairly good life. So it's really multifaceted. It's really complicated. It's utterly fascinating. And I would urge anyone to go to the Forgiveness Project website because there's so many stories. And it really kind of warms the soul to think that these such horrific things can happen but there is life beyond if you want there to be life beyond. Such an amazing, fascinating series of things that you work with. I feel like we've got some insight. We could talk all day, but I'm going to come now to the uh, standard questions that we use to close the podcast. The first is to get your reaction to some facts, and your facts are that women are 135% more likely than men to self-harm in prison that at least 49% of women in prison identify as being victims of domestic violence compared to 6% of men, and 46% of women in prison report having tried to take their lives at some point, 
which is twice the rate of men. Does any of that surprise you or they're the statistics you deal with every day? They're the statistics we deal with every day and there's many, many more that are equally as depressing. So to sort of end on a positive note, I guess, it it really does show us that what we're doing is a catastrophic disaster that is damaging people's lives, damaging children's lives, who about 18,000 of them a year will be going into prison. The taxpayers paying for all of this. There's all these different departments on the outside, like housing, like health, who pick up the budget also of then all of that going wrong. So all in all, you couldn't design something to be less efficient so there's a real need for it to be redesigned and for us to for us to change and I am working hard on a project at the minute that will hopefully do just that but maybe that will be uh, for another podcast when we get that going. Absolutely. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? Well I get it on two levels so there's sort of the misogyny of those sort of throwaway comments that people think are fine like women drivers oh make the cup of tea and if you show any reaction you're seen as oversensitive so that aside then I also have to deal with that oh your father was a duke or now your brother's a duke so then that's probably been more prevalent in my life. I was once told that the mince pies I was bringing into a prison were too posh to come in. (laughs) That was a weird one that I really remember. But actually, the thing that has annoyed me more than anything is when you sort of, a couple of times in London, I've I've tried to get into a certain club and they're like, well, you can't come in because this building or this institution is only for men. And that gets me really riled up. And, you know, people say, well, there's women only gyms and things like that but I think that's quite different and it's not steeped in hundreds of years of sort of women not having the vote and only just recently getting a female statue in Parliament Square only recently getting the first female bishop the first commissioner of the Met Police so really the thing that riles me is when I'm told I can't go in somewhere which again you'll pick up on that theme throughout the podcast of I just like to be in places probably that I'm not welcome (laughs) I'm just going to follow up briefly there. We don't normally do that in this segment, but it's too intriguing to let go. Do you think that there is, you know, you're a philanthropist, you're obviously following work, creating, inspiring, funding, managing work that brings change, but do you think that there's a gendered element that you're more likely to be dismissed as a sort of lady do-gooder than a man doing a comparable set of philanthropic activities would be? Yeah, what I find is often if you're sitting around with people at dinner parties, which we do a lot less of these days, I think sometimes men will assume I don't work, that I'm married to my husband, I'm a mother. And so I often don't get asked at all. So I'll sort of do all the questions, oh, you know, what line of work are you in to whoever's sitting next to me is usually a man. And then I said, I'm not going, giving them a chance to maybe ask me what I do. And then I go, so I work in the prison service and I actually have to fill that gap, you know, and I have always find that quite strange. Whereas lots of women will always ask what my line of work is. If you had all power and you could change one thing for women, what would it be? I was thinking about this long and hard last night and I spoke to my eight-year-old daughter about it and she was like, oh, that's a good one. And actually, so where I came to was, I think most women will relate to this, the sort of life admin. So you have your job, but then usually every other plan that happens in your life, you are usually the person who has to make sure there's food for the weekend, make sure that you know what's going to be cooked, get ready to cook it, kids' birthday parties, presents, wrapping, just the life admin. 
so I, and I sometimes feel a bit when I get really overwhelmed it's in the busy times of year like around Christmas when the social side is ramping up and I'm trying to work and all that's ramping up and I sort of think oh it's so unfair I wish there was more of a balance there and my husband's great and he's you know he leans in he's a big feminist and all the rest of it but still for some reason that sort of comes down to me and I'm sure there's many women who are listening who might might relate to that so I'd like to be able to change that a little bit not sure how (laughs) I'm sure there are many women who would be relating to that Virginia Woolf says I thought how unpleasant it is to be locked out and I thought how it is worse perhaps to be locked in Edwina Grosvenor says Edwina Grosvenor says life is not a dress rehearsal And it's something my father always used to say to me. And actually, yesterday was the anniversary of his death. And so I was thinking about him a lot yesterday. And he always would say, Edwina, life is not a dress rehearsal. And I think that says it all for me. You know, you can't waste time. You've got to fight the fight. And if only I could live three lifetimes, because there's a lot of the justice system that needs help. But that's what I would say. Life is not a dress rehearsal. Fabulous. Thank you very much. That's been a great conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard.